Hello, PAX Online! Uh, welcome to the first virtualized PAX. It's very weird. We're all we're all in tiny windows on my computer. Um, I am Dylan Alvento. I'm the co-founder of War Games. I'm moderating this panel. This panel is how to fund your video game. I have a bunch of uh, amazing uh, professionals with me that are going to talk about each of their, their wonderful expertises. Yes, Nigel and Anya, I'm going to... Yes, professionals. Um, let's quickly... I'm going to introduce everyone uh, talking on our panel. Uh, first off, to my, uh, to my left here uh, is Nigel, Nigel Lowry at, at Devolver. How are you doing, Nigel? Great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, to my right is Becca Saltzman, CEO of Finji. Hi, Becca. Hello, Dylan. Hello. And then down here, we have Anya Combs, Director of Games at Kickstarter. Hello. And then making his first PAX debut, uh, well, I guess that's a lie now because he said it's he went to PAX, PAX Australia, uh, <laughs> Callum Underwood, uh, Portfolio Manager at Callum Knights. How are you doing, Callum? Hello. I don't know why I waved. There we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, we, are, we are going to talk about game funding today. Uh, I guess I'll, I guess I'll clarify that now. Um, since uh, in games there are there are there are different a bunch of different ways for for indie developers specifically to kind of find ways to uh, help finance their game. Um, you have publishers, you have game funds uh, as like a distinct entity. We're going to use funding and funds uh, a lot in this talk, I'm sure. Um, but to to clarify that funding, when we talk about funding, that's kind of like the the action of of getting financing for your game. If we describe something as a fund, that's more so like a a, a entity that helps you know get you financing. So like Indie Fund or Kowloon Knights uh, uh, organizations like that. Um, and then obviously we have crowdfunding like like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and and other places like that. Um, but uh, to start off, let's 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 start it with a kind of a, a, a slow ball here in terms of a question. Um, I kind of want everyone to discuss like what their what their entity, what, you know, what their company does in terms of like helping people kind of fund their games and and you know the the resources they provide. So, Nigel, do you wanna do you wanna start with with Devolver? Yeah, sure. Um, Devolver is uh, a publisher. Uh, whatever that really means in 2020 anymore. Um, we fund games fully, partially, um, and that could range um, anywhere between $0 for people that we've worked with before that bring their own funding um, to in, in the millions, depending on how large of the team it is. And we will um, put forth the dev advances. We put forth marketing, localization, production, music licensing, everything that's, you know, on the table that the developer needs, I guess in the, probably the most traditional sense of folks that are um, on, on this panel, um, maybe it's weird to say, but maybe we're the most related to the old guard actually of publishing. Um, Cause we, we, um, you know, we'll fund things, um, but we have no development resources ourselves. Um, we don't do, we don't have any crowdfunding ourselves. It's just money that we don't bring outside investors in ourselves. Uh, we it's just, Devolver will put up the, the funding that way and then work with the developer uh, in every facet that they, that they need, depending on what it is they need. So in a world of constantly changing publishing, I'd say that, you know, or maybe the most weirdly weird to say that maybe the most traditional in that sense, because I think you'll find out here in a second, the rest of the folks on the panel um, have some really um, new and creative ways of funding games. But yeah, that's what we do here at Devolver. Uh, Becca, do you want to talk about what Finji does? And I think Nigel helped set it up in terms of like 
how is Finji separate from like the more traditional ways of maybe Devolver or, or older publishers? Yeah, Finji is actually super weird. So Finji as a studio is actually an independent development studio. So we make games. Um, we have um, like, you know, our lead engineer, we have two QA representatives. Um, we have audio, um, we have art like internal to Finji. But in addition to that, because we have to make and publish our own games, we will publish other people's games. Um, we're very, very, very low volume. Um, we usually take on kind of like one big release a year. Um, I've done two before and it's uh, difficult, um, especially when one of those is your own. Um, so yeah, I use, because of my particular job, because I do self-publish my own titles, I have all of the connections um, out of necessity to kind of all of the larger storefronts in existence. Um, so like I work directly with Nintendo and Sony and Microsoft, also Epic and Steam and Humble and even itch.io. Um, all of these are um, biz dev relationships that I have for my own titles. So I use those to represent other titles as well. Um, for funding, Finji's, Finji internal, we are completely bootstrapped for the most part. Um, and our main goal generally is to sort of find the biggest fan when it comes to a storefront to stand in the corner with us. Um, so for example, if we take Overland, um, we were an Apple Arcade launch title and kind of Apple was our main partner. Um, they were kind of the most excited about the game. Um, it was Tunic, that's an Xbox console launch exclusive. So that is our sort of biggest fan in our corner. Um, and this is a term that we're gonna probably talk about, but those are called co-marketing partners. Um, and those are usually larger companies that are um, the most excited to help back a title to launch. Um, a lot of Finji's funding is a mix of all of these things. So we have past titles um, that which have revenue that comes in. We have our co-marketing agreements. Sometimes those do involve some funding options. We also use outside investments depending on the title that comes in. Um, Finji itself, itself has only done one loan in the past on our internal development. But I mean, I have indie fund games. I have like, uh, other investments on past titles from external, like uh, when you fund a game, you're trying to figure out the the best, we call it the best possible package um, to fund a game. Finji also does a lot of bridge funds internally for our titles. Um, so if things take slightly too long, I pull directly from, from Finji's budget to get titles to launch. Uh, Anya, uh, in case in case people don't know about Kickstarter yet, do you want to give a light overview of uh, uh, Kickstarter's crowdfunding kind of platform and like what it what it provides and maybe like in case people don't know what it does it provide in terms of like helping video games specifically kind of uh, uh, crowdfund and and then get to market. Yeah, uh, now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, Kickstarter is a crowdfunding company. We are an all or nothing crowdfunding company. Specifically what that means is if you ask for $50,000, uh, if you are able to raise $50,000 and anything above that, you keep all of it. If you do not raise $50,000 and there is no exchange of money. Um, we are also not an equity-based platform. Um, we really believe in uh, keeping things as independent as possible. Um, we don't want people to necessarily be beholden to stakeholders. Um, if that's something you're interested in, there are other crowdfunding uh, sites and opportunities, um, but we hold pretty strong to those morals. Um, 
We are based in Brooklyn, New York. Everyone thinks we're in San Francisco. We are not. We are <laughs> one of the few tech companies not based in the Bay Area. Uh, so it makes us a little bit different in that sense too. Uh, obviously, everybody is remote right now, but we have people based in uh, formerly San Francisco, uh, Portland, Europe, Canada, kind of all over, but our main headquarters are in New York City. Um, we are able to provide crowdfunding. That's like our main sort of thing, right? So $20 gets you a game at the end of the day. Um, that can take up to six months to make. That can take up to three years to make. It's kind of up to the developer. Um, we do our best to do as much communication as we possibly can with developers. Um, we do our best to have as much communication between developers and backers, but it is sort of a relationship that is up to the backer and the Developer. We call people creators just because we uh, have more than just games. <laughs> Even though games is roughly about, yeah, games is about a third uh, of everything that's brought in. Uh, there's about $5.2 million US dollars pledged to Kickstarter as a whole, and about $1.2 billion of that is just specifically for games. So it's a pretty large uh, community. So in addition to funding, we also uh, have access to about 3.2 roughly 3.1, 3.2 million backers specifically just in the games category. So there's a huge community of people that are willing to kind of go on this fun, wild game creation journey with you. Uh, and Callum, uh, talk to us about Callum Knights and, and, and game funds and kind of like how they stand separate from uh, what people might traditionally expect from a publisher. Yeah, so <clears throat> the end result of working with Kalu Knights versus someone like Devolver or a developer should kind of be the same in that your game still is marketed, you still have PR, you still do QA, you do porting, you do testing and submissions and so on and so forth. Uh, but we're, a, we're specifically a fund rather than a publisher, which means uh, we are a very small company. We have about five staff, a handful of advisors, uh, we have a lot of games. We announced 30 signed games a while ago. We're above that now. Uh, we don't have to worry about things that publishers have to worry about so much. Uh, to echo kind of Becca's comment, we could launch a few games on a single day and not really worry because it's not actually us as the people at the fund uh, directly helping the developers. So we provide project investment, so not equity. What I mean by that is we give money for the game. If the game makes money, we get money back. We don't take any part of the company or anything like that, uh, which is equity investment. Uh, but we're providing the capital or the funds for the developers to pay themselves and their salaries and contractors and so forth, but also to cover everything else. So the the main difference that we'll see between somebody pitching to Kowloon Knights versus pitching to a more traditional publisher is with a traditional publisher, usually, and again, I'll probably mention this a lot of times, every publisher is different, but usually you're expecting the publisher to handle certain services, you know, again, the, the biz dev relationships, the PR, the marketing, and they'll have internal teams. Sure, they can outsource some of that, but really there's people at that company managing it. Whereas we, uh, we exist to serve the pretty niche and pretty narrow subsection of developers that either have a lot of experience in or really want to self-publish and go down their own path of doing things. That might be developers who've worked with publishers in the past and had very good relationships but want to do things for themselves. Uh, it might be 
you know, commonly we see people who are leaving AAA to found their own studios uh, and have been through the shipping cycle a few times and know what they, they need to do, but not exactly how to do it and just need the funds to do that. And we focus on around half a million to $5 million per title, uh, which is also, uh, for those of you new to games funding, somewhat niche. Most of the pitches I, I usually see per year uh, are kind of under 1 million in terms of volume, uh, and it gets smaller as you kind of go up from that. Uh, but there's still many, many devs that live within that space. Um, so yeah, we're a fund, not a publisher, which means we give you all the money to pay people to do the things you need to do for your game. Uh, and we don't do it ourselves. And there's there's certain terms and, and kind of ways of, of us doing business that, that uh, reflect that fact. Like one of the key ones, I think, is that the uh, the developer takes the payment from the platform rather than us. So if you have your game on Steam, you make money on Steam, the developer will get that money into their account and then pay us rather than the other way around, which can help with cash flow issues or, or things like that. But there's a few things we do differently because very specifically we're a fund. Um, that's not to say that we're better than publishers whatsoever. I think it's very important developers understand what they want from a partner. And some of those really, really need a publisher or want a publisher or just want to do their thing and have someone else handle it. And some of those really want to do things themselves. And some of those people are better at that than others. What I find really interesting, I'm actually going to pump bounce onto that. Um, mm -hmm. Most developers often end up with both. They have both publisher and investment and Kowloon is the investment. And then they need the help with the biz dev side of things. Um, I find very few people who are able to do both without having quite a large staff um, to sort of handle both pieces of it. Um, so yeah. I, it depends always... what you mean by publisher. So I, I agree, yes. but we, what I, this is something I'd be talking to Felix actually, who, who works with you. Um, what I, what I think is the gap between requiring a publisher and just taking a bunch of money and doing it yourselves. Cause you're right. A team of, a team of two who did uh, Sea Salt, which was a Kowloon-funded game, right? That's a small indie game. It did okay, did well, it made money, but that those two people can't be, you can't require those two people to do everything it takes to ship mm -hmm. a successful indie game. So they use capital to pay other people and other agencies. So they had a marketing agency, they had a PR agency, they had a QA house, they had a porting house. Um, and I think the gap between them is either if you're big enough to do it yourselves, which are which are a good few of our studios are, uh, they have you know 30 to 50 staff in the, in the studio, or uh, they're a much larger team that has a smaller team working on a game and can support with others, is like a studio manager function at a smaller company. So it is somebody who uses that budget to go and work with partners and and work with uh, agencies and so things. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It could be a it could be a publisher, or they could use those money to like pay people to do that and i think there's a we've had a few, we've had a, a lot of conversations actually with publishers uh about co-investing along with publishers and sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't when it doesn't work out it usually comes down to generally the the publishers that you'll normally hear of have certain business models that assume they're fully funding or assume they're doing something certain and for a developer to already be giving away uh, a portion of their revenue to Kowloon for taking all of the risk on the money, there's just not enough left for the developer. And so we all end up walking away or we walk away. So uh, yeah, I totally agree. But I think with with Kowloon, it actually tends to not be the publisher who's the the, the other person. It's it's They hire people to manage that from their studio um, or they're able to manage it themselves, which is even more of a, of a niche um, than, than before. 
And there's also one last thing is, you know, that gap is, I think is being filled with the past few years. There's a people that are with a lot of experience that have become consultants and really helped guide smaller studios. So they're not, you're not, you know, they may go find a, an, a marketing agency or whatever, but you know, the, the people that did Ted cells and some other folks, I think untitled goose game, they've been working with uh, people like Nick Sutner. They're not part of the team, but they're guiding these teams along and helping mm-hmm. them either find funding or what they should be doing with marketing or how they should handle working with people like, you know, Apple or Xbox. So there's, there's just so many options that are popping up and, and there are gaps um, there, but they're getting filled with some pretty smart people too. Mm-hmm. Just about about finding, you know, this is what we're talking today, finding out what's uh, what your team needs or you as a solo developer need and, um, and be comfortable with that. And folks like Papa Gendico as well. Like it's even blurring the mm-hmm. lines of what is a marketing agency versus what is a publisher versus what is a biz dev consultant. And it's, it's, it's exactly what you said. People who've been doing it long enough and are smart enough and connected enough um, and friendly enough, like they end up filling those gaps because you can just fill your knowledge from other people. Uh, so I agree. It's, that's, I think that's the hardest part, honestly, of trying to describe publishing in a general sense. And we discussed this a little bit before the call is just that it's, it varies so much from even game to game, never mind company to company, that it's really hard to make grand sweeping statements about it. Uh, and you can only really speak to the truth that, that you yourself know. It does sort of seem like the games industry is almost sort of trying to follow like a Hollywood model, but because the games industry does not want to model, we don't want to model model ourselves after like, you know, movies or music or anything like that. So like traditionally, right. What we're basically talking about these people coming in for like untitled goose game and dead cells is essentially an agent, right. Someone to sort of like take care of you or like a manager, but we don't have those systems set up within the games industry. I know that I think like CAA, CAA creative artist agency and a couple others, um, there are like games agents, but because we are so protective of our space as like games industry people, like we just don't trust suits. <laughs> well, and on top of that, like the, the agencies that you're describing don't like there's, I mean, we even talked about this just slightly before, like we're going to have to define a bunch of things that we talk about. Um, and even within like CAA or um, UTA or any of those, like they don't, they're good for drumming up business and they're good for representing you for like more celebrity sort of things, or they're like, they represent esports, but they don't do the day-to-day business that we're doing. They'll help you through a contract. But once they're past that, like if you're like, okay, well, how should I put together my store page? Or like they, they, that's so outside of their day-to-day business. Um, and I think it's really interesting what, Kowloon brought, or about Kowloon, Callum from Kowloon, uh, <laughs> what he, that was really funny, uh, in my brain. Um, <laughs> it's okay, I'll give you that. The, right. What I think is really interesting, because I didn't actually mention this when I described Finji, but what you described sort of, we are technically a publisher, but we are a, we, from the beginning, we refer to ourselves as like the weird indie games label for publishing. Because what Adam and I view ourselves as and why our our percentage is his, historically very low for games publishing is because we view ourselves as a, a development assistant and biz dev arm of your team. See, we you would know? fit together much better than traditional yeah. publishers. And I like I, I've had I've had many calls with with publishers. Even myself, when I worked at a publisher, I would have calls with Kowloon. And we just, we always ended up going, there's so much crossover in what mm-hmm. we do that we just can't 
And what you don't want, and, and every publisher runs their business differently, but but something that I always came back to is it's it's very difficult to, if you have a slate of games, let's say, if you're launching, you know, five games a year, and for four of those games, you're getting uh, 30% as the, as the publisher, and one of those games, you're mm-hmm. getting 5%. It's very hard to just keep those all in your brain at the same time, knowing that one means significantly less money for you or for the dev than, than the other. So um, that's why things like Finji, I see Finji more like a Pop Agenda Co, uh, a Nick Sutton type of thing, because you're, you're, you're focusing on a specific thing and doing it very well. Um, and that fits better with people like Kowloon who focus on a very specific thing. I would also argue Devolver focus on a very specific thing, but that's, mm-hmm. that's just the type of games and devs that they work with rather than anything else. So. Uh, all right. Well, that that went in a bunch of different directions, and crap, I wrote down <laughs> so many things. No, it's good. Um, I'm trying to think of because I mean, obviously, like we went. What's great about this group of people is that you, you all have kind of like a distinct understanding of like where you all reside in this landscape. And I'm trying to understand, uh, trying to aid the person that like has no idea, like doesn't even see the landscape or doesn't know what the topography is or doesn't know what a right. map looks like. Um, and it, it's hard for me to find the, the, the proper the question, but I mean like, so I'm just going to kind of briefly go over like, you know, uh, in a traditional sense, kind of like the steps of, if you approach a uh, uh, a publisher, if you approach someone like Finji, or if you like decide to do a Kickstarter, but like, and and, and this knowledge has kind of been like diffused a lot and has been put out there, but it's like assuming, and we're gonna go in with a couple assumptions. We assume you have a game to show. We're gonna assume that the game ha- ha- is like a certain amount of long, like it has enough that it's playable. It's in a playable state. Um, we are assuming that you have a contact at whether it's Devolver or some other publisher or you like, you know who to talk to, um, which I mean, some of that information and some of that information is basically like, and everyone briefly mentioned it here, like a lot of this, a lot of the groundwork and like starting these conversations is literally like having a conversation, right? Like, I mean, everyone on this call I have met in like really different circumstances i think becca i just kind of cold called you like we reached out to you to t- discuss something callum i think we became mutuals on twitter anya we were introduced through a mutual friend nigel just met for the first time here um but like i i think i, I think the intimidating part is like doing that first step and um uh kind of like how, how you reach out to to someone um so like say you have a game you you have you have something to show, you have a prototype, you think you have a pretty good elevator pitch to bring it either to a crowdfunding platform or to, to a publisher or whatever. Like, um, what else does someone need to have? Like, what else does someone, and there's a, a bevy of different things, but like kind of want to go over briefly, like what what is the packet of materials that you are expecting when someone wants to approach you about uh, getting funding for their game? I think the Kickstarter side is probably going to be vastly different from everything else, just because it's a, it's a totally different world. Um, but yeah, we, you, there's a couple of things quickly. So you need to have 30 seconds of gameplay. Um, it's just required. Uh, it's kind of the only way, you know, it's the easiest way for people to kind of see what's going on. Um, there's a list of things, but I would say if I, if I had to have the two most important things, 30 seconds of gameplay, and you need to have a community that already exists. Um, if you're coming to Kickstarter to like build a community from the ground up, it's going to be a miserable experience. So you definitely need to have an existing community of some kind. What is gameplay to Kickstarter? 
Gameplay is uh, 30 seconds of what is as close to what the final project is going to look like. I so didn't know that. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah like yeah, if that's yeah, like yeah, a vertical slice or if it's, you know, a demo of some kind. And it's just from the perspective of like, it doesn't have to be final, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But if you're just using boxes and those boxes are ultimately going to be like humanoid characters, mm -hmm. it's impossible for a backer to understand. That relationship is very different where your backers are not like your, your publishing partners of any kind, right? They don't necessarily understand the lingo. They don't necessarily understand what actually goes mm -hmm. into a game. In their eyes, they're like, but I just want the thing of what you told me you were going to make. So sometimes- I mean, even most, yeah. even most publishers need a demo. I just didn't know- I didn't know that Kickstarter also required you to be that far right. wrong. Not that it's a bad thing. It's just yeah. I, I think what Anya is specifically saying though is that like uh, you know programmer art on Kickstarter is kind of a no no, um, just because like it doesn't it doesn't sell the project. Like I think a lot of publishers like preliminary demos like oh I have the maybe the character modeled or I have like an edifice of like some buildings or whatever like and you can kind of get the idea like we're kind of like showing like raw gameplay. Whereas like if you put plop that in a in a in a trailer on kickstarter like the 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 end consumer is going to have a real hard time like making that imaginary leap from like this is what it looks like now this is what's going to look like at the end result yeah we can engage with assets and like prototype versus vertical slice which are two different things prototype is like my mechanics work and my systems work and like vertical slice is like i could take this to a pax show floor and show it to fans like two totally different things also apologize my neighbor is mowing their lawn. It's really obnoxious. <laughs> my neighbor's dog it. is barking. So oh yeah, my God. In the same boat. It like started as soon as this call started. Okay. So there's like these two different things and that's like very game development lingo, prototype, vertical slice. They're even different links, but a publisher, um, be, depending on the publisher to be perfectly honest, but especially publishers who engage with the development process from start to finish can a hundred percent engage with a, prototype because we can look at assets we can look at 3d models we can like see especially in system-based games we can like see the pieces and how they move that's not to say every person at the publisher can but there's always at least one and that's even the case at consoles like the farther you move up as far as like getting a project it's often the more polished things need to look. Um, so like dev relations engages really well generally with prototypes, but as you move up out of dev relations, like the person we talk to, the more polished things need to look. And that kind of is the same with basically every company. Finji's weird because we're developers. You can't take what, like how, you could send us basically garbage that moves across the screen boxes and we'd be like yeah no we totally understand what's going on but that's not how most people work because most people that you talk to don't also make games and i think it's on those lines it's important to remember you know you're working on your game and you're pitching to whoever this partner is but it's also it's it's still competitive so that partner is looking at other things right so we definitely have signed games based on you know write-ups and just static art or gifts um, but certainly if you have 10 games in front of you and one of them has a vertical slice or a prototype as Becca referenced, um, and yours is uh, paper uh, or really rudimentary kind of gameplay, it may be a very good idea, but it might be hard for that particular partner in that particular moment to say, yeah, I like this idea, but this one I really can digest and know where it's going and believe that they can accomplish what they're saying that they can accomplish because they have, they put it here in front of me. 
Um, so, you know, it also just, it's, it's worth, it's, I, I hate to tell developers just to come back when you have something playable because that isn't necessary, at least for us. And I don't think it's necessary for everybody, but in that competitive space of pitching, which it is, it's a competition, whether you like it or not, um, people might have something that's more polished. That's just easier for the person that's giving you money and resources and time to look at and say, yeah, this is a, this is something I can digest or sell to the rest of my team. I may get it. I may love what you're doing, but then I have to go to other people on my team that just doesn't connect with immediately. Mm -hmm. If you have something playable or something, even in video form that helps, you know, sell the rest of the team. Um, so, you know, this entire talk I'm sure is going to be fraught with, well, it all depends and caveat, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's, that's just the, there's no getting around it. We started this whole thing with discussing what is a publisher or what is a partner or what does this even mean? And that's the point. And there's no, it's not a binary thing. It's just, mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's shades of gray and there's spectrums and you have to figure out where you fit and who might, to Becca's point earlier, who might be your ambassador, who might be your champion, who is going to take that torch with you and run to the finish line. And so I think a lot of it uh, just, you know, it's situational, but it's, it's never going to be easy. And when it tells you this is pitching process is going to be easy is lying to you. Um, but yeah, having something to us just to finish the thought to us, we tell people we need to be able to see the fun in the game. That's the most mm -hmm. important part. If that's a video, that's a playable, if that's uh, you know, an animatic where you're mocking up other games and then pointing out what you're going to do with it, your game, that might be enough. And it also based on the relationship. If I've worked with you before, Mm -hmm. whatever sure so you know we'll sign you know we love you whatever you want to do next we've never worked with you before or you've never had a game kind of commercially released there is a little more requirement at least on our end to have a little more um proof in that pudding if you will right so mm -hmm. um it is uh it, it depends and this is why we have these different partners uh, but excuse me different representations on this on this panel because um, it's different from different partners that's a good point though about the scale of bullet experience so um, usually when I'm looking at games that are being pitched, I'm figuring out like, there's always the business angle. Like, will this game make enough money for the developer and us to make money? You know, that's that otherwise you will go out of business and not be able to help anyone else. Um, is this the right team to make the game and can they pull it off? And if, uh, I signed a paper pitch recently, actually. So a paper pitch for, for those who don't know is a, uh, I have an idea for a game. Here is a bunch of text about it. Here are some images of what it might look like. Um, and this was interesting to me because it had zero assets. Like usually paper pitches I've signed in the past at least have concept art and they, they've put something on paper. This had nothing. It was just an idea. But the team, I had very good references from the team from other people. They'd shipped stuff before. They showed me the game that's shipping at the end of this year. Like, I know this team can ship games and they have a certain look and feel about it. And I love the idea enough that prototype funding makes sense. Um, everyone does prototype funding a little bit differently. The way that Kowloon does it is we don't really look at prototype funding in a different manner to other games. Let's say if a, if a game is going to cost a million dollars to make, and they already have a prototype and the, the million is from then on, fine. We just, you know, we, we sign it and, and away we go. Uh, and we don't have milestones at, at Kowloon. That's that's also pretty different. Um, but if it's a if they want to make a prototype, we'll say, okay, the first $200,000 is to make a prototype. But then we have a milestone, which is like, we think this is cool and you think this is cool. Let's continue funding the rest. But it's not a $200,000 deal. It's a still a million dollar deal because you're expecting to, to pay for the whole thing. 
but yeah, to, to get a paper pitch signed, I, I'd be so impressed if someone managed that without having shipped stuff before, without having a mm-hmm. team who's shipped stuff before and a team who's worked together before as well. It's all good and well and good playing fantasy football with team members. But if you never shipped a game before, that's also a risk. Um, and then again, as Nigel said, if you've worked together, it's much, much easier. Like we, we often do repeat funding for, for people we've worked with. Uh, and the problem with all of this is this all reduces risk for everyone involved, and that's great. Good games get made, but this is exclusive and elitist, and it makes it very, very difficult for anyone leaving school or who hasn't made games before to like, like everything that we've just said, even Kickstarter, uh, you need a prototype to get funding. Like, how do you make a prototype? How do you get funds to do that? Do you do it in your spare time? How do you find a team? And that's, that's, we could do a whole nother panel about that. Right. I think that's something that generally the games industry needs to work on over the next two or three years. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's one of the biggest blockers to, uh, like diversity and inclusion is just people getting even beyond that first stage. Well, and I kind of want to summarize that that point that that you all were making. That basically, like the burden of proof, the the amount of burden of proof depends on like what your prior experience is. So, like if people that are watching this, and if they are like new to the industry or trying to make their first project and go about like trying to find a partner for it, like requires more proof and unless they have a yeah, but if they have a prototype but it's fun uh, who they are like kowloon is different right we we want people who can self-publish but at super hot presents or where i used to work raw fury and i'm sure devolver etc like if they have a if they have a prototype that blows you away like that is the rarest let me swore i stopped myself that is the rarest thing in this industry to see a prototype that blows you away so if they haven't made games before you know you can work that out and, there's like, totally ways to around this though like so, cause we obviously work with like students, we mentor lots of people, like having that prototype of your game, like you're probably not going to get signed if it's your first game on a paper prototype. However, if you have been making things and putting them up on itch, like you have just been like your hobby forever has just been creating things. Like there's a lot more confidence going into that. Plus you've already been building an audience for the weirdo stuff that you're making. Like there's so many ways into, into independent development. You've created a following for yourself. Like you're, you could show up with a prototype that is kind of ugly. That might just be blocks moving around on a screen that might be really, really small. And like, because you have made stuff, a publisher can look at that and been like, man, you've got the chops. Like you can do this. And what you need right now is mentorship and funding. Like there's a lot of ways into this for people that are really just trying to break into the industry. Um, that's not to say it's going to be easy because you have to build that social, like you have to put yourself out there. You have to be on forums talking to other people who will champion your work that will talk about your work that like, that's how you build a Twitter following. Like, you know, we didn't come up with this on our own. It was because we were putting ourselves out there, like, you know, back in the day on TigSource. Like, it's just, it's just a piece of this. You're joining discords about game making. The people that you're talking to about making games are going to talk about your projects on their social media as well. Like, and all of these things add up to be able to sort of get through the noise. So especially like Nigel brought up something where it's like about prototypes, but the difference in range and scope of what a prototype is and what we can engage with is very different depending on the genre that you're in. You can show up with like, I mean, not quite literally blocks moving around on screen and ugly UI if you're doing like a systems-based or strategy game with some key art. Because we all know that the prettiness of a strategy game comes last 
you have to make the systems work. Whereas if you're making a narrative adventure game, those characters really matter up front. We need to know how that conversation is going to work and how it bounces back and forth and like, how does it feel? Um, and what are those, what are the, the characters look like in the animations as they're talking to each other? Like, so what across genre it's like the scope and range of what a prototype is, is huge. Like there's so many options and like being able to talk to people that are in the genre that you're trying to develop in, that you can do that by literally joining discords, joining online game development communities and putting your work out there for other people to look at. Because I guarantee you, your work has problems. Our work has problems. Like we send our work out all the time to other developers to be like, how broken is it? Is this a bad idea? Because we want those off ramps as early as possible before we get like nine months into a design, which we've done before, and then have to cut it entirely because it just wasn't working, but we just hung on to it and like wasted nine months of burn. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so many options when it comes to prototyping, but in general, if you're like, Hey, I got an idea, unless you've shipped something before, like really shipped something, most people are going to look at it and be like, you can't make a game because there's so many moving parts. You don't actually know what it's like to launch something and to finish something. So that's why paper prototype, or without not paper prototypes, that's like pen and paper, but that's why paper pitches are so difficult for most of us to engage with. We need to be able to see that you understand how things are interactive. Uh, there's another interesting thing you brought up or, or you pressed upon the importance of like, uh, and I think Nigel in that GDC talk he gave a couple years ago uh, used the term brutal honesty. Or just like, you know, critical feedback, right? Like, yeah. I think um, I think sometimes we treat uh, uh, pitching as the first opportunity to get feedback <laughs> as opposed to like should be the umpteenth time. Like, like right. you should, like Becca said, like as, as you progress through a project, you should be getting uh, more and more feedback. And I think um, uh, as someone that hasn't engaged with that a lot, I think like at least it helps uh, like it helps either build your confidence in what you're making and maybe like solidify how to discuss that with a with a funding partner versus like seeing where the where the cracks are and like being able I think to it's more I think it's I'm always hesitant to suggest to people to ask other game developers because right yes everyone has their own vision and knows their own stuff right but I think it's I think you just touched on it is it's uh, one big example I use is I got pitched a rhythm game once. Now I'm not a rhythm game aficionado, but I can play rhythm games. Uh, and the the simplified incredibly. The way that rhythm games work is you have a certain window of time in which to like hit a button, and then it like gives you a perfect or so. And the window of time in a normal game might be this. In this game, it was like this, so it was super difficult. And I was getting really frustrated playing it. And I told the developer this, and they said, "Oh, oh yeah, we didn't know that. Like we can fix that though, of course." And my my like. I was immediately on the back foot because I thought you were making and pitching a rhythm game. You should have known this already. And so when you when I tell devs to ask other developers, it's not to like change your game based on what they say. It's to anticipate similar feedback from other people, right? And then be able to answer those questions and like why you decided to do that, etc. You're asking, does this work? Is this broken? Am I missing something? Can you poke a hole in this design? Can you see where it's going to break later? It's not to actually, I mean, even within Finji, like we, like I mentioned, like we help with the design process. That is not Adam going like, this is what I think you should do. Cause that's crazy. I don't want to make tunic. 
Andrew's making a tunic, but Andrew does need a design mentor, which is Andrew coming in and being like, here are the things that I'm doing. Here's the part that I just built. Where are the problems that you see as a player of my game and as a designer? So you understand how it works and having a designer that you trust, you can't just take this to anybody. A lot of people especially designers, are so wrapped up in their own opinions about things that they can't look at something and what the sentence we use literally internally all the time is, is this the most tunic decision we can make here? Is this, does this make it the most tunicky? Is this the most chicory version of this game? Not, is this the most Adam Saltzman version of this game or the mis- most Finji version of this game? Is it the most chicory version? And when you are able to box in that and you work with a, a mentor or designer or a feed, somebody with feedback who can ask those questions and like sort of make you answer them, then you're, you're interrogating your own design, um, which is real helpful when you go into a pitch process because hopefully you've identified whether this game is even possible to complete. Because... If you haven't, you might be like bumping right up against something that will never ship because it's broken, like quite literally broken system, like systemically even. Uh, I think there's one distinction here, though, that I think just kind of needs to be made because I I don't want people to think that uh, your playtesting should only come from like fellow developers. That's the only thing that I would want to just sort of caution here. Like you should definitely have a good sort of diverse set of like playtesters. Yes. That was something that I learned deeply at Nickelodeon. The playtesting that was done at Nickelodeon was insane. Uh, and it totally changed my perspective on playtesting. It was really, really fascinating. Um, but yeah, like two different perspectives. There's there's like player playtesting where you're like, I'm going to have, you know, different ages, genders, and spectrums. Mm-hmm. Versus I'm going to have my community playtest my game. And you should definitely expect two different results. Yep. You're asking different questions between those two audiences. Ani, you mentioned community a couple of times, like coming into Kickstarter with like a pre-existing community. And um, I'm thinking about the the uh, the developers of Backbone, that that kind of like pixel noir game that that just got uh, they they just put out like kind of the their pitch deck on Twitter like a week or so ago. And um, it was interesting that they include things like a Twitter follower account, Discord uh amounts um which makes sense like it's something like obviously it's like hey we have a pre-established community but i think that's even like now you now you're even asking like all right developer not only do you need to create this fun prototype that's going to blow me away but also like have you been creating this prototype long enough to have built a following and have all this like i think like i think it's i think people would love the opportunity to have their own ingrained community i think it's also like a, a another intimidating thing and do you think like that's necessarily something that that has to exist depending on the different vectors for funding people go with um yeah i mean like i'll definitely let these three experts speak to the publishing side of things um but (laughs) (laughs) thanks we've got to take turns on this (laughs) for kickstarter at least like it's an interesting opportunity with kickstarter where we see roughly like a your first project is mostly going to be like a 30 70 split and so what i mean by that is about 70 percent of your pledges are going to come in through the community that you bring in and about 30 percent of that will come from kickstarter those numbers fluctuate this is not like hard fast numbers these are very much like this is typical um but what we also see that's really interesting is that the more that you actually run projects on kickstarter one you fund quicker and that number fluctuates where that 70% suddenly becomes 60, then it's 50, and it just kind of gets lower and lower and lower. Um, so you've, you've 
built essentially like two different communities. I would say though, the way that I sort of encourage people to look at this is if there's anybody out there that's like, I will just launch my game and people will come find it. You are in for a very sad and hard and rude awakening. Um, you kind of need people to kind of like get excited about the thing that you're building. Um, this is a weird way to describe it, but I think about it in the sense of in the before times when we could go outside um, and you went to like a movie theater, right? Uh, let's say there's like seven different movies. The ones that you're going to recognize are the things that you saw commercials for, right? You're like, oh, there's another Fast and Furious movie. I super want to see another movie about family. Like that's like, you know, the easiest way to kind of think about it. But if there's movies that you didn't think about or like didn't know anything about, what's the incentive to go spend money on a movie that you've never even heard about? Um, so thinking about it in that perspective, again, very, very weird <laughs> kind of way to think about it, but I, feel I think like, that's perfect. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh yeah. No, just, I, that's kind of how I try to explain it to people. Like why, what's the incentive to spend money on something you have no, you know, literally nothing about. Everything we just talked about all relates exactly what Anya just said. Like if you have a community, that means you've put it out there, right? In front of people. And those people have given you feedback and then maybe that has adjusted the game. Um, and it also shows that you have a little bit of like, maybe you haven't made a game before or a commercial game before, but now you have some skins on the wall, right? To say, hey, uh, I do have people, you know, publisher or partner, whoever that are interested in this game and they've given me feedback. Um, you've, you've not worked in a silo and uh, just kind of come out and said here, because that feedback, if you do that, going back to the last point, if you just kind of come out, there's some brutal, brutal honesty, right? That happens. Um, and you don't want that first time you heard it to be from the partner you're pitching for, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. Right. And that partner could be the public through Kickstarter. That partner might be Callum at a fund that might be Becca. That might be myself. That might be whoever um, you want to hear it from your friends and family and then other developers. And then maybe the public that you released an itch uh, IO, you know, demo to, um, you don't want that to be the first time you have it. So having a community is all related to testing or, or feedback. It's related to being able to prove out your concept that people are interested in. Because one of the things I think over the past 10 years that has really solidified in my mind is that transition from hobbyist or um, game designer for fun to one that wants to make this some sort of commercial endeavor, whether whatever range that might be, meaning just to make rent or to become a millionaire or you know buy a yacht or whatever it is you want to do. Um, there's, a, there's a jump there and you need to be willing to I think at a certain point, accept the commercial things, the baggage that comes along with that, because we are all for games and we have published many a game that um, us and the developer do because we think it's important for our sake, um, not because it's a commercial endeavor, right? Um, that being said, like I th- going back to music, like people can play the guitar and enjoy playing guitar and making music and not think that they're going to make money off it. That's that's. Amazing. And probably more people do that than that. But if you're going to make games, games art, if you want to make games, make your games. If you decided that I'm going to make games because I need to feed my family or make rent, or this is something you will have to start looking at these commercial things and putting it out there and understanding feedback and all the, all the things we're, kind of we're talking about today. I think that sometimes you get lost because I think people are surprised. Like my art is beautiful. I'm like, yes, your art is beautiful. Your art is amazing. I love what it's doing. But asking consumers or a partner, whoever, to put down money for that is definitely different. Um, and you have to find a partner. There, there are partners, and including us, um, that will look at something and go, this just has to happen, right? Whether it makes money or not. 
but you have to be understanding like not, there's not that many of them that will do that. Um, or it's like a large amount of money. It's sort of like a lawyer taking something on pro bono. Mm -hmm. Like all of us take something for pro bono because Mm -hmm. we feel deeply in our soul that this has to exist. And whatever this thing is doing is going to influence so many things in the future. I have one of those in our back catalog. It was absolutely important that this thing had to be launched. It absolutely has only made me $200 in the last five years. And I don't care because what it did and what it built was so important for the games industry for it to just exist. And that's fine. I put space in our schedule for that. I went into that project knowing it. And so did the devs. That's like, the exception though, to be clear. It like, is. I think we all have it that absolutely in our portfolios, is. but that it like the expectation to the dev. And I, I agree with both of you like this, this meeting of commercial and artistic, like that Venn diagram middle bit is what everyone really wants to go for is where you know you can make money out of it and the dev can make money, but it has this like true artistic vision. Uh, that's like the dreamland for a lot of us. But, um, and I think we all have those projects that we funded that we know won't really make money. Super Hot Presents, the whole fund is not, doesn't exist to make money. We know we'll lose money. Um, like Frog Detective, I think is a good, I'm repping them right now. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good example. Like we funded Frog Detective. I won't say for how much, but it wasn't, huge amounts within the games sphere, but it's a large amounts when you're talking person to person. It, it'll probably make money eventually after some years and being on other mm-hmm. platforms and so forth, you know, that, but it's not, that's not the point, right? The point was Grace and Tom and the games they make should exist. We can afford to make them exist without them having a, uh, a, a publishing deal or something we didn't think was right for Grace because like, how are you going to publish Grace? She just does everything on her own, right? Um, and so we're like, fine, if we lose money, we lose money, but that's what that's we've made money out of selling our games elsewhere. So that's a good idea. Just on Backbone as well. So Backbone kind of messed up on Backbone. So I first reached out to them in 2018. I was at Raw Fury at the time. Uh, I'd seen like one GIF or one still on Twitter that, that Alex had posted. I reached out to them, but we talked. Um, and I was like hot on the game, but not hot enough to move forward. So we just kind of it fizzled out a bit. And then they they went away uh got this big ass community did a bunch of work on the game did just did a whole bunch of effort for literally a year and then like hit me up they're like hey what's up look what we've got and it wasn't like we've done this for callum to get funding they just happened to have done all of this in the meantime and they were talking to some other partners and i was like all right i i shouldn't have walked away a year ago let's just make it happen and what was missing for me at the time and as a scout um you're trying to find the reasons to fund the game or to not fund the game, right? You're just trying to find the flags and I'm sure everyone here has the same process. And for me, like, I loved it. I just, I didn't understand the market at all. I don't understand what the market for noir, primarily text-based mm-hmm. pixel art games with furries in looks like, right? There's just not a lot to compare it to. And this is the same problem as anybody in the world trying to pitch a visual novel right now. You'll see that the the two of the most successful visual novels recently uh, Coffee Talk and and Necrobeaster and maybe Disco Elysium and other none of them call themselves visual novels whatsoever. They're narrative driven games or something like that because visual novel has has become this attached to like there's just lots of them and they're from mm-hmm. hobbyists all the way up to two professionals. So for me, I just didn't know what to do with Backbone back then. And then it would just they proved it out uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to sign it when I was when I was back at Raw Fury. So I think Backbone's a really good example. But like the the amount of effort that team puts in to non-dev stuff is is insane. Like from a from the beginning, 
from like their first four employees, they had someone wholly focused on business and community and platforms and doing Kickstarter and everything like from day one. And I think that's devs who want to go down their path. I think forget about that from day one. And they, they assume they can make a game and just figure it out and come to it later. And I think backbone, like they always had success written on them because they cared about it from day one and they knew what they had to do. They haven't made games before and they're new. Like they've not made games before. They've not shipped games together. They've not made games and shipped games. So they've managed to do this. You don't need the experience. They just have that, they have that work ethic and drive to, to make it happen. And, and as Nigel said, like they understand what a commercial game looks like rather than a, a hobbyist game. And they wanted that um, to be able to then, you know, pay themselves more and hire other people and do good things with that money. Like my company, Robot Teddy, who who does kind of similar things to what Nigel was suggesting that Nick Sutton and people do. Like we have this, we have this moral that we should we should get paid well by people so that we can use that money and time to to help other people with less money and not as good backgrounds to to help them. Right? It's like reverse Robin Hood. We don't steal. I mean, we steal a little bit, but it's it's like you use. It's okay to get paid. It's okay to get money for stuff because it's about what you do with that money that matters, right? Like Devolver make bank, but they they use that money on cool stuff and cool devs and, and making art and so forth. And I think that's that's something else that the games industry doesn't like to admit, or a lot of the games industry doesn't like to admit is that making money is okay. And I do think making money is okay. I, I like money. It gives freedom. And I think that's, that's the main thing that a lot of indie devs, especially, they don't like talking about money, um, but money gives freedom to do other stuff and help other people if that's what you want to do with it. It's so interesting to me because I feel like the games industry, we pride ourselves on being so different, but we consistently follow other types of, of uh, art, right? Like I feel like the games industry so is just continuously following on the same path as the music industry um, in so many different ways. The biggest one being this term indie is so coveted and it's so precious and it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, it's so ubiquitous now too, so. yeah. So I feel like the word indie conjures up this this vision of this like starving artist. And yet Double Fine, you know, previously was an indie company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if... Uh... <laughs> Is Mediatonic an indie company, Nigel? Not at Genuine? all. No. I think indie now to some people means you're not EA or Activision. And to other people, it means you live in your parents' house and make games on a, a spare computer. Like it, well, you're right. It's why they've started using triple I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. double A. Now like we're triple, A's. we're triple, triple indie. Yeah. yeah. We're three but indies. Think, yeah. yeah. Okay. Does that just mean I have three more people on staff? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I think Colin, to your point, like that's why this whole concept of money, like the discussion of money is so like, it's, it feels icky, but it shouldn't because at the end of the day, like, look, capitalism sucks and I would love to burn it all down. But like, until that happens, we have to kind of accept that this is just what our bullshit, our crappy reality is. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was uh, Get the swear jar out. <laughs> uh, so I totally get it. Trust me. I totally, I live in New York city. Like the fact that they are not canceling rent in the city and there's so many artists that are starving and they're going to kick us out of our homes is a, is a nightmare. It's a living nightmare that we're living in. But there are ways to get money, right? And like, there has to be sort of a reality discussion around money that we just don't want to have. So if you're going into this and you're like, I, I just feel like my art needs to be made. That's awesome. You don't get to complain if you don't make money then. Yeah. 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 Game budgets. I mean, they're high. Like running a development studio when you have 11 people and they have, I mean, and we're small, uh, that need health insurance. Like, you know, we're running 
pretty high six figures a year just to run our studio. Um, and it has to come from somewhere. Um, and we're like Grand Rapids, Michigan pricing. I'm not B. Right. I'm not, I'm not coastal pricing here. Um, but like, that's why, um, like it's why we're looking, going back to my very, very first thing I said, we're looking for sort of the biggest, the biggest, most excited fan in our corner when it comes to biz dev partnerships, because in order to push enough copies to make sure that my wild set of creative devs that are based all over the world can make another game, because that's literally our only goal is we want our creators to continue to make things because it's you don't go into game dev if you want to do something else. You have to make games. Like writers write because they have to write. Game developers make games because seriously, those engineers could go work at a bank for 200 grand a year instead of the usually pretty garbage engineering salaries in game development. There's a reason why games cost so much. AAA budgets are crazy. How many engineers they have on staff? Like at AAA, like those budgets make me have heart palpitations to make a game. I get like, nervous watching cyberpunk gameplay. I'm like, mm-hmm. how's this happening? Yeah, happening like, in front of you? Yeah. These are yeah. like hundreds upon hundreds of people across continents making games. Like this games are, you can't compare them to movies as far as budgets the staff required to make a game is astronomical, just the people required because we're engineers, we're artists. Like there's somebody literally sitting somewhere in their house right now making hair and they've been making mm. hair for two years. That's all they've done. Or they made all of those flowers in the last Mario game. Like somebody just did that for two to three years of their life. And that's the only thing they did. I know I have a friend who made one castle for two years. One castle. Like that's Mm. how games are made. That's why they cost so much. That's why these Mm. budgets are huge. It's not because we're rolling in cash. It's just expensive because the skill level and the talent required involves so many people in so many tiny corners of every single game. And when you hear like the one indie orator who made their thing, cool. I don't know how they did it. Even Andrew on Tunic is not by himself anymore because it would, I mean, it would never come out. He'd be working on that for 20 years. The game's enormous. We had to give him a staff. And that's I what don't we're know working ex- on. I don't know examples of actual solo orators of the past few years though. Like actual, like maybe there are. Go, I do know uh, Anya, Anya's one apparently. Undertale, Toby. Yeah, but even Toby had collaborators. Like they, yeah, that's s- true. some some of the that's bosses. What I mean. Like, I, I mean, truly, like, I did not collaborate. Like, not people say Notch, but he had Jeb and people on that game. Like, sure, yeah. from conception, maybe, but well, because it doesn't. But that's also it, something that's not talked about, right? Because it doesn't yeah. fit like, the myth. It doesn't fit. It doesn't. The, it really doesn't. Right. Like I said, that solo, like, starving mm-hmm. artist, which is such a like, it's a ridiculous concept. It's just a ridiculous. I'm sorry, but it is a ridiculous yeah. concept, and it's detrimental but to the mental health of like artists. Knowing that going into a pitch process, talking to people who actually do understand, like all of us, we all understand the the money required to make a game, but we also understand the money or the number of copies required to earn back yep. the money to make a game. Yep. And like for the people we're talking to right now, know when you go into that meeting, when you get that meeting, that the people you're talking to understand budgeting and finance. 
We understand cash. We know how many copies it'll take to sell your 1999 indie title. We know how much the porting will cost. And when you are talking to them, understand that the materials you set in front of them matter because we have to look at them and be like, I got to sell, you know, 62,554 copies of your title to earn back the budget that you're asking for. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like, yep. I know those numbers. Like I know that for Overland, I knew how much I had to sell for Night in the Woods. I know what it's going to be at Tunic at launch. Like I know exactly how many copies I have to sell within like 2% or whatever, depending on regional exchange rates in the future, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, that's the thing that I'm looking at. I mean, like this title is amazing. It's cool. Oh, they need like 1.3 million. Mm-hmm. Where am I going to come up with $1.3 million? Can they hit a console hardware year? Is there a budget floating around out there? Is there like an investor who thinks this game is as cool as I do? Can I sell that to them? Maybe, I don't know. Or am I going to have to put together a package from four different people to fund this? Yeah. Like that, that's, that's literally what the people on the other side of the table are thinking all the time, dear audience out there at PAX Online for the first time. Like the suits are thinking in numbers and we're thinking, oh, this is really cool. Can I do it personally? Mm -hmm. Is my reach that big? Can I do this? Could I champion this? And what you're not hearing in that discussion is uh, how much money can I make? Right? Like Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it's not about recoup. Like you recoup, sure, I've I've managed to- If you if, most of the time when you talk to a publisher about recoup, right? If I give a million dollars for a game uh, at a publisher, I need to recoup one million dollars. I need to get back a million dollars before I am at zero. But I'm not really at zero because I have to pay my own staff, which are usually not included in costs and time and effort. And there's, you probably need to make like one point three before, really, on a company wide basis, you've recouped. Um, which I don't I also don't think is taught. Like you have to make profit. Like this is what we do at Kowloon. We have a we have a. Every single game we look at, we put it into a model that's like, here's what we need to recoup. Here's what we need to 1x profit. Here's what we need to 2x profit. And just see like what the numbers are. Uh, and those numbers for games that cost $15, $20, $25, like that's their price point at market. It's a lot of copies at that point. You know what I mean? It can make a huge difference going from $19.99 to $24.99. Mm-hmm. Like when you take on average 50% of a, of a Steam sale, right? Like you sell it your price point is 10 bucks. You get an on average over time, including discounts and refunds and, and price discrepancy in countries and, and con- conversion rates. Like you get about five bucks on average. And that's like most people are either thinking 10 bucks or they're thinking seven bucks because they, you know, take out Steam's 30% and I get the rest. Like it's, it's pretty hardcore when you have to think about the units and every one of us at some point looks at the units and, and has to make a decision of like, is this doable or is this guaranteed to make a loss? And if it's guaranteed to make a loss, it goes into a different part of my brain where it's like, is this something we have to do and we should do because it has other value to the company? Like, are we, is this a is this a strategic partnership with a game we know is going to blow up and we'll probably lose a bit of money, but we know it will be a big advert for the company? Like, maybe that's a thing you do instead. But um, yeah, the unit, the, the number of units in order to make profit is like something for every game and it's terrifying for, for a lot of games, especially in markets where uh, like visual novels, again, like you can make money in visual novels, but the majority of visual novels and the majority of uh, like local multiplayer games don't make hundreds of thousands of copies. And if you need to, if you need 600,000 copies of a game before you even recoup, it's really hard for, for 
you know, I can, count, I can count on like one hand, how many I lied, maybe one hand in my feet who've even hit that kind of copies this year in mm-hmm. indie, like hundred thousand is like, it's not quite lightning strike at this point. It was like five years ago. If you did a hundred thousand copies in indie games, like in 2012, that was a big effing deal. And I knew kind of every indie developer who had hit that, those numbers. It's a slightly bigger collection of people because the indie people are more willing to buy indie titles at this point, but like a hundred thousand is kind of not the minimum floor anymore for success in order to earn back the budgets required to make games. Mm. Um, and it, I'm sure Nigel actually feel there uh, has this number sort of internal to devolver. We like at Finji, I kind of know about exactly how many copies I can sell on reputation alone and what that between reputation and my break even budget and profit number, like I know kind of every one of those, like I can sell X number of copies on reputation. That's going to be like my first two to three weeks. And then after that, I know what I have to hit um, based on like marketing reach and everything else. Um, Devolver's reputation number is much bigger than mine. <laughs> Guaranteed. It's much probably bigger running than mine. out of time, but I, I, I kind of disagree. I actually think that, I don't know, there's, there's some level for sure, but uh, it, the game itself, we've had, I don't know. We can't. Yeah, but we can't you have you have a level. A lot of publishers don't have a level. True, that's fair. There's, Your um, audience, like I said, I talk to devs all the time. Like you guys, really, sh- you should talk to Devolver. It's such a Devolver game because you have that, and I think it's very cool. Yeah, we yeah. love Devolver, obviously. Right, well, you, you guys are good friends. <laughs> um, well, that's that's pretty much time for us. I really. Uh, I think this conversation went in a lot of really good directions. I think uh, I really appreciate at the end us talking about kind of like specific like units and numbers, especially the 50% number, because I think that's, again, something people don't really understand the like you are not making back like yes, Steam or whatever platform takes 30%, but that doesn't mean you get that the remaining 70 is like, you gotta think of refunds, you gotta think of sales tax, you gotta think of your partnerships and what percentage they're taking, whether it's a hundred percent recoup or some other percentage you've agreed on. Um, but uh, yeah, the majority of your sales aren't going to, or majority of your units sold are not going to be at full price generally. Right. They're going to be at some discount. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're at time. Uh, I just want to briefly want everyone to kind of like plug their stuff, plug themselves, see where they can, where people can reach out for them. Don't, all right, Callum. Um, I forgot about this part of your podcast where you get to plug yourself. Yeah, so I, I most gotta, hated yeah. part. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, all right, well, Callum will go last then. Uh, Nigel, do you want to discuss like, you know, where, People can find either Devolver or you or, or any of the fine sure, things. Sure, we're really, I mean, the two best places is uh, old school website. We just have a little form and an email. Um, we send it out. Everyone gets, there's a group of people who get it. So please submit there uh, as much information as you can. And Twitter, we just look at GIFs and videos and things like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely, those two places are the easiest, easiest ways to reach us out, at least these days. Uh, how about you, Becca? Where can people reach out to folks at Finji? Uh, so we have our website, which is finji.co. Um, it's F-I-N-J-I.co. Um, as far as pitches, we do take them, but our schedule, like I mentioned earlier, we're very, very, very low volume. Um, and we're actually booked all through next year. Um, so the kind of projects we're looking at would be far like beyond that. Um, partly because we are ramping up just our own finji internal development because we're done with overland. Um, but yeah, usually that comes to hello at finji.co and that actually goes directly into my inbox. So it might take me 
half a lifetime to respond to it. Um, but I do try to get through them. I get a lot of email. So uh, I've gotten the fast Becca email. I've gotten the slow Becca email, but she, she will get back to you. Uh, Anya, where can people find you? Uh, you could check out kickstarter.com. <laughs> it's a whole bunch of stuff. Never there. heard of it. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, it's a N Y a at kickstarter.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at a N Y a Y N a, because I thought it was really clever making a palindrome seven years ago. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, and Callum, how about you? Uh, for Kowloon Nights, if you want to self-publish or partner with someone like Finji and Kowloon, uh, just kowloonnights.com. There's a form there. It probably asks for the same stuff that, uh, that Devolver asks for. We love it if it includes a video so we can just see straight away or a GIF or something like that. Um, actually, something if you if you have a, a different what you would call a difficult game, either difficult gameplay or deep systems, a video of you playing it would be really helpful so we can see what high-level play looks like. That's one of the things, you know, we're noobs, noobs to the game. Uh, you can also email me at callum at callumnights.com. I reply to every email eventually. Uh, since I'm plugging myself, I also run a company called Robot Teddy, robotteddy.org. We do uh, we work with Superhot and Boneloaf on Gang Beasts, and uh, we are not agents, but we're Nick Sutner-like, if we can turn that phrase, where we work with nice devs on cool stuff. Nick uh, Sutner-esque. Yeah. Sutna-esque, yeah. <laughs> like um, awesome. Uh, well, I hope everyone enjoyed uh, listening to these fine folks talk about ways that you can get funding for your games. Um, obviously, this is up on the the pack stream if you're watching it uh, as it goes live. Um, if you want to listen to more talks, uh, I've done a bunch of different panels and podcasts with three of the four uh, guests here um, on uh, developing, publishing, stuff like that. And that's all at ward-games.com. Um, and then if you, if you so choose to follow me, I guess I'm on Twitter at Dylan Alvento, and you can figure out how to spell that. Well, we have lower thirds, so just look at the lower third and figure it out that way. Um, but yeah, thanks, guys. And thanks, Dylan. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Uh, and everyone enjoy the rest of their packs online. <laughs>